Flames, the podcast where baseball fans discuss the baseball books they love. This episode, we're talking about the book, Will Big League Baseball Survive? Globalization, the end of television, youth sports, and the future of Major League Baseball by Lincoln Mitchell. A fascinating 2016 book, which examines the extent to which MLB can continue to thrive in its current form and analyzes some of the key factors likely to threaten the future health of the sport. I was fortunate enough last week to speak to the author Lincoln Mitchell about the book and we chatted for about half an hour about the book's main theses and also topically about the likely longer term impact of the coronavirus on baseball. So Phil and I will be back to discuss the book when we've heard the interview segment and I began the segment by asking Lincoln to explain what motivates him to examine the future health. Well, I've been a baseball fan my whole life. I mean, really, since I was eight or nine years old. And what the book, Will Big League Baseball Survive, tries to do is, I don't, it's not another book about how baseball is boring or how the game is too long. I don't find baseball boring. I hope this comes across in the book. This is written from the perspective of someone who loves baseball. But what struck me was that the truth is I was edited Doubleheader with the rare, we used to have doubleheaders all the time into the 1980s or so, but this was a rare, real doubleheader where you played ticket for one, one cost and you got to go to two games. And my friend, we were up at Yankee Stadium, and my friend in, in, in the seventh inning stretch, who's been, this guy's been a Yankee fan since the 50s, got up to go to the men's room. Now, if you know anything about a major league baseball game, you don't go to the men's room in the seventh inning stretch. That's a rookie mistake because that's when the line is the longest, right? If you got to go, you go on the top of the seventh, although the team is still back because the line is shorter. Okay. And I said, Matt was dumb, but he comes back very quickly. And I and he said, there's no line. And I looked around and it's a double header. Granted, they were playing the Pirates who weren't very good that year, but it's the Yankees in Yankee Stadium. And the ballpark was empty. Or you know, was, was a third to two thirds empty. And, but those tickets had been sold. So they counted as attendance. And what I began to think about was there's this discrepancy between the top level data about baseball, the television revenue, the number of fans coming in, but then there are these other indicators, both within baseball itself. World Series tends to get very poor ratings unless there's a real, you know, the Yankees and the Dodgers or the Cubs Indians a few years ago. People, people don't watch television as, as much as they used to. So, and, and there's the big indicator for me is that it is not part of the culture of America in the same way. There was a time in my life when during the World Series, even if it was in the middle of a presidential election year, the World Series is in October, that's what people talked about. You know, as late as 1984, it wasn't the most exciting election, but in October of 1984, you talked about the World Series, not, not the election. It, 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 there was a time when people who, when everyone in America could have named three or four baseball stars, current baseball stars, all of that had changed. So baseball's role in the culture was changing. And I started asking, what are the other variables out there that are influencing the future of baseball? So I looked at the changing technology, the shift from television to online media, where baseball, I think, in the kind of the product they've created is very good. They're struggling to monetize that the way they would like, and that could have a longer-term impact. Globalization, right? So a question for me, what I love about baseball today, you know, the 21st century, the second decade, now the third decade of the 21st century, is that when you go to a baseball game, even if it's two teams that aren't very good that year, you are seeing the best baseball players in the world. That was not true until relatively late in the 20th century. And at some points, it really wasn't true at all. I mean, when you went to a baseball game in the 1930s, if the Yankees were playing and, you know, Lou Gehrig before he got sick and Joe DiMaggio and Lefty Gomez was pitching, um, 
And maybe they were playing the Senators or somebody and Joe Cronin was playing shortstop. But half the guys on those teams were not any better than people playing for the San Francisco Seals in the Pacific Coast League or for some factory team in Michigan, right? So I like that you're getting that high, high level of competition. But it rests upon Major League Baseball kind of owning the globalization and drawing in uh, the, the, team, the players from, from these other countries. And then I looked at the way young people think about baseball. It's just not as popular with young people. A, a, a part of that, which has long been a problem for baseball, is that baseball has pushed girls away in a way that, say, basketball in, in the United States, what we call soccer, hasn't. Um, so I was trying to look at And then I'm looking at the economy and just, you know, as I I'm, I'm happen to be reading this wonderful new biography of Yogi Berra, um, because there's no baseball on the field, but we still have great baseball books. And it talks about baseball, Yogi Berra negotiating with the Yankees for more money in his contract in the 50s. In the early 50s, he negotiates, he goes in, and he comes out with $30,000 a year, which was a lot of money in the 1950s. But it's not in real dollars anything approaching the $30 million that the top players are making today. So this sport built upon constantly raising ticket prices in a country where the gap between the wealthy and the poor is growing, saying to go root for millionaires for a ticket you can't afford, is that sustainable? So those are the macro questions that kind of framed my thinking about, about the book and, and why I set out to write it. And then, I, and then I wrote this kind of a book because, you know, I love baseball and I've been around it my whole life. You know, I played all through high school. I coached Little League with my kids were younger for many years. I've gone to more games, read more books, own more baseball cards than I can remember. But I'm not an insider. You know, I can't get to the Yankee clubhouse and interview Aaron Judge. I can't go downtown to New York when, you know, when it's normal and interview Rob Manfred. But I am an academic. I am a social scientist. I wanted to bring those skills to bear on a baseball-related question where I thought I could bring some interesting and new perspective while writing a book that is not academic. I have It uses academic skills, but I tell baseball stories. And the reason for that is I know, as a baseball fan, that what I like are baseball stories. So I try to tell baseball stories to answer some of these questions. I think you're incredibly successful in, in terms of um, in terms of in terms of tackling those questions in a, in a method, methodological way, you know, you, you say it's not an academic book, but it certainly has a, a certain academic quality. And, and that that's that's to its strength, in my opinion. I think that one of the things that you do really well is um, is present a series of very well thought out arguments on a number of different factors. And I, and I think that's one of the reasons I enjoyed the book so much. I mean, it's something that you touch on in your in your in your introduction and what you just said there, you know, as someone who's been watching baseball for a long time, you've seen lots of changes. How how do you think? Because I think we can I think we can glean from what you've said already that the health of Major League Baseball today, relative to its history, in terms of the amount of money in the sport and the attendances and the number of people that are watching the games, is doing pretty well. But how how do you compare it as a spectacle to when you forgot when you when you first began? Uh, being a fan of the sport. So, so to be specific, I first started going to games in the mid to late 1970s. And although I, I was born here in New York City, I grew up in San Francisco. So when I say games, I'm talking about Candlestick Park. I don't know if you ever went to Candlestick Park, but if you read about it online, they talk about how cold and miserable it was. It understates it. You know, a night game in August in Candlestick, you would I would dress in the clothes I would wear when I would visit my grandparents in New York over Christmas break. Wow. You could get into the low 30s. There was wind. It was... So it was a different kind of experience. But so so there were a couple differences. Baseball until very recently was played largely in front of empty empty ballparks. When Bobby Thompson hit his famous shot heard around the world in 1951, still the most famous home run in baseball history for my money, there were 22,000 empty seats in the polo grounds. 
So, so it was it was a different kind. The word spectacle was different. You go to a Giants game, there'd be eleven thousand people there. Now, when you go to a Giants game at their beautiful new ballpark, Oracle Park, there's forty thousand people. So there's just a different feel. But I think that to me, the, the the challenge here is the product on the field. There is no question that a guy like Mike Trout, right, or a pitcher when he's healthy like Noah Syndergaard with the Mets, throw harder hit the ball harder, swing the bat more effectively, cover more ground in the outfield than almost anyone from the generation of the late 70s when I became a fan or any time before. The, the, the training is better. The athleticism is better. I mean, there were pitchers in the big leagues at that time who threw in the high 80s, a fastball. Today, if you're a high school senior throwing the high 80s, you don't get recruited to a Division One college. That is to say to the bigger, better colleges for sports you can still go to a small college that's good academically like like my son did but you know you're not going to ucla to pitch on their baseball sure sure you know, a, when a pitcher threw 100 it was a major major news in the sports section so and so hit 100 on this you know the goose did 100 in this relief pitching at, for the yankees the other day but what's happened in baseball is the the way it's experienced on the field is that the what's known as the kind of quantitative revolution sometimes called the sabermetric revolution the analytical revolution which for my mind really brought much sharper understanding and analysis to the game, which I appreciated. But the conclusion of that was a product that makes a lot of sense. If you want to win baseball games, you have to think about the three true outcomes, which are the home run, the strikeout, and the walk. And pitchers who strike out a lot of guys are very valuable. Batters who hit a lot of home runs and draw a lot of walks are very valuable. And people begin to realize that if you're a batter and you strike out a ground out, really what's the difference, right? So they so players who have that skill set began to become more valued and get more spots in the pitching rotation, in the starting lineup, et cetera. Now, if you have more of those three true outcomes, defense matters less. Because the ball is put in play one every, I don't know, three at bats rather than I'm exaggerating, but one say one every 1.8 times into the plate rather than one point every 1.9 times, you know, you need defense less. So what's happened is the product is less enjoyable because when you go to a baseball game or when you play baseball as a kid or when you walk through Central Park under normal times, this time of year when the high schools are beginning to play and, and you stop and watch because you're like me and you just want to see a little baseball, what's fun is when the guy hits it in the center field or tra tracks it down and makes a great catch. When the guy hits it and he hits a double and he's heading to third, the right fielder throws it to the second baseman, cutoff man to third base, and they get him out. That's what makes baseball fun. But when it's just strikeout, strikeout, walk, strikeout, home run, it's for me, the product isn't the same. And I don't fault the numbers people because I was an early adapter to those numbers. It helped me understand, enjoy, and appreciate the game more. But but collectively, it's changed the feel of the game. And there's another piece of this too, which is, I think, discussed less, which is that when I was a kid, I remember when I became a baseball fan. You know, so again, I was seven, eight, nine years old. And I was talking to my grandfather, who was a first-generation American, uh, and 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 for many, particularly Jewish Americans, baseball was part of what made you American. So it was very um, embraced by not not necessarily by the older families that came over, but by the younger people who were born here. Like it could make them feel more American. So he loved baseball, and he'd grown up in the Bronx, so was a Yankee fan. But he was telling me about one of the reasons he and he said, you know, in baseball, you don't have to be seven feet tall. You don't have to be, you can just be a normal person. And if you go back and look at photos, go back and look at my, my baseball cards from the late 70s, these guys don't look like ball players at all. Like, like they don't look like they could get the bat around on a 95 mile per hour fastball, but they were playing in the major leagues. So, so you kind of could now, there were exceptions, right? So the great Giants first baseman, Willie McCovey, who had started in 1959 as a rookie and was still playing in 1980, came back to the team in 77. 
Willie McCovey was physically and metaphorically a giant among giants. He was a big, strong guy, and he looked, you know, he had a different physical presence. Today, eh, Willie McCovey would look like every backup first baseman. They wouldn't hit the ball as hard as he did, but just so so that that changes well. And for some people, that makes it better. But you know, it depends what your approach at baseball. I mean, I love going to a playoff game when there's fifty-five thousand people there and you know rooting for my team. But I also love going to a game on a just Tuesday night when there's five thousand people and just chatting with my friend and not having too much noise around. And I always like that. But that's not for most teams. That's not part of baseball anymore. And I'm sure the owners and players are happy about that. That's a good. Yeah, I mean, you could, yeah, it's a, it's a really good answer. I mean, ultimately, it's a subjective, subjective argument. But there's no, there's no doubt that um, there are people in the game who who bemoan the fact that it's become uh, more one-dimensional in terms of three, three to outcomes. I mean, I, I'm interested to see. It's a shame we haven't had any baseball this season for a number of reasons. Yeah. But one of the things I was excited about was uh, the changes to the rules um, with relief pitchers. So you, yeah. you know, you, you, it's almost like the league was mitigating. Uh, for the overuse of relievers um, in in what they what they're trying to do, and and then that was largely perhaps uh, brought into place because of questions about the length of uh, games. But I wondered if that might have had a, a positive impact on them, on what you were describing. You know that that kind of having more balls in play, having having the game uh, a little bit more uh, reminiscent of what you were describing, perhaps in the nineteen seventies and nineteen eighties. There's another piece of this as well. Now, 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 as a giant fan, right? You know, the Giants won three World Series earlier in the last decade because Bruce Bochy was better than anyone at baseball on that matchup game in the late innings. So I was fine. I was fine with no limits. Now you could face one batter because we it helped the Giants win three World Series. But but the other – I lost my – I'm sorry. No worries. I was due to you just talking about the relief pitchers and uh, and, and introducing <laughs> the, the three three batter minimum. So, so, so uh, you know, I live in New York, and I have a lot of Yankee fan friends here. And, and one of the trivia questions I love to ask my Yankee fan friends. So 1978, the Yankees, uh, they had the, they were behind 14 and a half games. Great comeback. Uh, Bucky Dent hits this great home run in the one-game playoff against the Red Sox. One of the most famous home runs in Yankees history. Everybody here remembers it if they're a Yankees fan in this town. And then they go, they beat the Royals in the playoffs, and then they play the Dodgers in the World Series. They lose the first two games. They win the next four, and they win the World Series. A great moment for the Yankees, right? And this, I don't know if you remember this team, but this was a star-studded team. Thurman Munson with a great catcher. Reggie Jackson with a great home run hitter was in right field. The Goose, Ron Gidry, all these guys. And I asked them, what were the, who were the three players in the outfield when the Yankees clinched that World Series victory? Now, this is an obscure trivia question. I mean, I'm not going to ask you unless you know, but it's a hard one. I'm the, I was just just uh, hovering my hand over the mouse to put on baseball reference. But no, I'm not going to try and cheat. I'm not going to cheat. Well, the answer is Jay Johnstone, Paul Blair, and Gary Thomason, right? The starting outfielders on that team were Roy White, Mickey Rivers and Lou Pinella with Reggie sometimes de-aging, sometimes playing right field, right? But the point is, in the World Series, they only carried nine or ten pitchers. And part of what's happened in the game today with this matchup game is you carry 25 players, 13 are relievers, are pitchers. 26 now, you know. That's, uh, now, but still yeah. 13, so you don't yeah. have a bench. And part of the game, for what I've enjoyed as a fan, is the strategy. But there's no strategy if you can't pinch hit, you can't pitch run, you can't put in someone for defense. And I, sure. and I hearken back now to what's become a more controversial playoff series, but the Yankees-Astro series last year, which uh, pitted two very, very good teams against each other. And and the Yankees lost. And, and you know, I watched it with a friend of mine who's a huge Yankees fan, and he was going crazy because they were losing. But what was even more frustrating was they couldn't do anything because they couldn't pinch it. It was clear Edwin Encarnacion shouldn't have been in that lineup, but they didn't have – 
if you carry a three-man bench, you essentially have no bench. Sure. So this emphasis on relievers takes a lot of the strategy. It ironically takes some of the funner strategy out of the game from the fans' perspective. Sure. I'm going to move on. You, you, you talked about how one of the things you mentioned, one of the factors was uh, was youth baseball and, and how um, there's two two elements to this, really. One, players are playing uh, baseball less in their youth, but also that those who do play baseball in their youth are only playing baseball. And that's a significant factor because um, they're not they're, they're specializing too young. They're not getting the um, they're not getting the kind of exposure to multidiscipline sport uh, that they need to become top level athletes and i thought that was really interesting i wondered if you wouldn't mind touching on that a little bit it's it's a complicated set of questions because on the one hand what's really disappeared for young people in america over the last 20 30 years is what i might call the sandlot and people would call it different places different the sandlot is a word that originated in, in western san francisco where we now have been to san francisco golden gate park but that part of the city was built on sand dunes so kids would go out there and play baseball and there'd be sand it was called the sandlot but the informality, right? You go out with a friend in New York, you say you go out and have a catch. You just take two gloves, you go to the park, and throw the ball for half an hour, right? You play for strikeout, stick ball, variants of that. That is, has disappeared from the American, from America. And it's been replaced with structured baseball because that's how kids can play. Now, some kids love that, but that's not, forgetting baseball skills. You don't learn the same skills if you don't navigate that as a child with other children, right? When there's an umpire saying safe or out and the coach says, you can't argue with him, he's a grown up. As opposed to in the park, I thought I was safe. I thought I was out. Well, are you going to fight each other over it? You're going to find a compromise. You're going to move on. So that's one piece of it, right? So kids today, those who do play, play a lot, right? But they're a small minority, and they're playing in these structured environments. This thing about not playing other sports, there's a, an awful lot of evidence. And I'm not going to go into the. It's in the book. I'm not going to really detail it here. If you want to be a good baseball player, then you should spend your fall playing on the soccer team, football team, right? Um, Play basketball. And the reason is twofold. One, it's just good to take a break or threefold. Two, you develop different muscles. So, for example, football or soccer is, is much more running than baseball. So if you're going to play on the soccer squad, you're going to be running a lot, which will then help you be a better baseball player. And sure. the third reason is that if you are a pitcher and most good young players pitch at some point, you can't pitch year-round. You'll hurt your arm. So you force yourself to take a break. I'll tell you a funny story. When my son was in eighth grade preparing to go to high school, he was very serious baseball player and a very talented pitcher, my younger son. And I, I, I had said, I don't want you to play fall baseball, which he loved because he had to apply New York, applying to high school is a pain. So too much. So I said, you know, maybe take a break, focus on getting good grades and getting into high school, which he did. He's not going to college next year if they have college. And he said, okay, I'm not going to play outside on, on, a, on a, you know, on a fall ball team that's competitive, but can I play on the school football team, school soccer team instead? And I said, he said, it'll be good for my pitching. I'll get my leg exercise. And I said, yeah, sure. Why not? Right. So, but of course he never played soccer before. He's an athletic kid. He knows how to run around, but what he's really good at, because when he wasn't pitching, he always played first base because he's like a big left-handed kid, is you throw a ball at him and he can catch it. I mean, no matter how hard, right? So he's, they, a, goal, he's a goalkeeper. They put him in goalie, right? <laughs> he was bored out of, no one ever scored on the other team, but it was just boring because he wanted to run around. And he's like, okay, the ball comes every now and then I catch it, I throw it back out. So those are the reasons. But, but the other piece of it is if fewer people play, fewer young people, you don't create a broad fan base. Sure. Baseball's a complicated game. If I take you to a basketball game Monday, a soccer game Tuesday, a hockey game Wednesday, if I take you to a lacrosse game Thursday, you understand it. And if I take you to a baseball game Friday and you've never seen it before, you say, what is this? So you have to learn it. You know, I mean, you have to, you can't understand what, what the infield fly rule is, what tagging up is, 
you know, why it's hard. We take it for granted. For example, if you're watching a game and there's a left-handed hitter do up for the other team, you listen to the game and say, okay, now, now they're going to bring in a left-handed, they're going to bring in Zach Britton, a lefty reliever to get this batter out. Now, you know, from, from being a baseball fan, why, right? The statistics on that, you know, that left-handed batters don't hit as well against left-handed hitters. Have you ever tried to hit a curveball from someone who throws from the same side as you bat? If you haven't had that experience, you don't really understand that, right? So I'm a left-handed batter. So I remember in high school, like the few times we faced left-handed pitchers, if they had a good curveball, I couldn't touch it. I could hit the righty curveball. You know, I could slap it to the opposite field. But but so that's an example that you don't experience it. It's hard to really get the passion for the game on a wide level. I'm ambidextrous in the sense that I can't hit left-handed pitching or right-handed pitching. So it doesn't it doesn't affect me. Hold right, um, down the middle and we're done. Um it's what what do you, one of the one of the things. Well, you've talked a bit about youth baseball there. You, you've talked about globalization as well. This is something that I'm really interested in because um, we talked a little bit off air about the uh, the Indian uh, Premier League, the, the Indian uh, cricket short form uh, short season competition that takes place over about six or eight weeks. And it strikes me that this is effectively barnstorming. You know, this is this is one of the things that you talk about at, at, at quite a lot of length in the book. You know, that the how barnstorming was something that was a, a big part of baseball. Um, for quite a long time into the 20th century, um, and that there's potential for it to, to come back in a, in a in a truly globalized baseball world. You might expect to have um, a structured form of barnstorming. How how realistic prospects do you think it is in terms of emerging markets and and the way that the way that baseball is structured globally? Well, Chuck, do you want me to take a minute and explain what barnstorming is? Sure. Yeah. Sure. So for much of the 20th century, ballplayers weren't paid all that well, except for the, the Babe Ruths and the Lou Gehrig's, the really great players. So in the offseason, they needed to make some extra money. And what would happen, what they would do is they would create teams and they would travel around the country because baseball was only played in the big league baseball in only 11 cities. So they might, in, you know, in the early winter, go to the Midwest and it would get too cold. They'd go to the South and the Southwest and it'd be traveling, you know, 10 guys organized by Babe Ruth's friends and another 10 of, you know, Lou Gehrig's friends. They would play against each other. So people in smaller towns, smaller cities, could see. There was also in the United States something important about this, which was the barnstorming allowed the best players to play against each other because until 1947, baseball was segregated. So if I, the, the best hitter of the pre, of what we call the Negro League era, uh, who never played in the major leagues because he was too old at the time and was a guy named Josh Gibson, a big slugging catcher. Well, you might say to yourself, what it, well, it's too bad that Josh Gibson never got to bat against Lefty Grove in the 1930s. That would have been really fun to watch, right? But they did because of barnstorming. Ted uh, Satchel Page got to pitch to you know Ted Williams because of barnstorming. They actually pitched against each other in the major leagues also. But so so it allowed these these com these combinations of players who you wouldn't otherwise have seen. And also baseball is a team sport. So we root for the Yankees, the Cubs, the Red Sox, whomever. It also is an individual sport. So it allows you you know if if there's a Babe Ruth or a Willie Mays, you know if if you go to a Giants game in 1963. In, in Candlestick Park in San Francisco, and you've traveled from your your home in in say up in Washington State because there was no baseball major team in Washington State. You've come a long way, uh, and they're playing the Dodgers, and you get to see Sandy Koufax pitch against Willie Mays. That's something you will remember probably for the rest of your life. Sure. But if you go and Willie Mays is benched, and instead you know Harvey Keenan was a great ball players in center field, eh, it's not the same. So barnstorming allowed for that. Now to get to the present. I actually think there is um, a possibility here, but it has to do with, well, there's, there's, there's the, the big picture possibility, which I talk about in the book, is that if baseball really gets 
grows, gets some roots in a big wealthy country that's not the United States, right? So if baseball were to really get some traction in say China or India, then rather than have, you know, what we do now, which is the Yankees and Red Sox play a series in London, which is exciting if you can go to those games. Sure. It's not the, the same. And, 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 and you could also do it with globally with great players from Japan and Korea and the Dominican Republic. Well, the great Dominican players are all in the major leagues. So I think there is an opportunity for that because of the excitement, because baseball does have that individual dynamic. And it would be a great way. It might also be a lost leader at first to just highlight what the game really is. A, a parenthetical that I would just tease out a little bit here is that because of the current uh, crisis we're in, because of coronavirus related, and we don't have a normal Major League Baseball season this year, it's not a bad time to think about barnstorming in 2020, right? Sure. Rather than patch together some weird season in Arizona, which may or may not even work starting July 1st, but maybe August 1st, because we don't really know, right? It might be a time to think about, you know, go to that, 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 that kind of field in Iowa, right? Go up to Cooperstown and don't have, you know, the Mariners and the Indians, but put, put teams together, players who want to play, players who are comfortable because of health reasons, you know, smaller squads, but, you know, the big names. The only thing that complicates this now is the pitching in baseball. Because I remember one year in the World Baseball Classic, uh, early on in the world, and I'm a, I'm a fan of the World Baseball Classic, Panama lost a game in the ninth inning. And, and the, the manager, and I forget who it was, was asked, uh, and and the the best what well, was asked, Panama the best relief pitcher in the world, ever was Panamanian Mariano Rivera the great Yankee closer, but the Yankees were never going to let Mariano Rivera play in some exhibition game. Sure, sure. And they asked and they asked the Panamanian manager, would you have lost the game if you had Mariano Rivera? And the guy just laughed. Of course they wouldn't have lost the game if they had Mariano Rivera. But but Rivera was being paid fifteen twenty million bucks a year by the Yankees, Steinbrenner's the Steinbrenner family. Rivera's job was to win a World Series for the Yankees, not to help Panama. So, so that complicates things for barnstorming with pitchers. But, you know, you can work around that. That can be overcome. It could certainly be overcome if it, if it was something that the players wanted to do. You know, exactly. if, the, if, if the players were to exert more power. I mean, that, that's one of the things I wanted to talk about as well. You've already brought on or you've already we've talked a lot off air about coronavirus. And and you've just mentioned the coronavirus yeah, in the context of baseball and the future of baseball. I mean, are there underlying factors uh, that could be exposed here. We've, we're already aware of a, a growing tension between the the MLBPA and uh, and MLB. We're already perhaps aware that um, baseball consumers might be changing the way that they consume baseball. Do you, do you think that coronavirus perhaps brings to the surface some things that that might affect baseball in the future? Well. Coronavirus is going to affect everything in the future, right? Sure, sure. I just, I just mean, I just mean in terms of, in terms of us having no baseball at all right now. Right. So, uh, and, one one question is, you know, how does baseball reintroduce itself, right? If we lose this entire season, which could happen, you know, there are going to be people who, you know, a year without and they've survived, right? Or other forms of entertainment. I mean, baseball is not competing with, you know, football and basketball. Baseball is competing with Netflix and the movie theater and the restaurant sure. cafe for all of that disposable income. But, but baseball is also a, an unbroken story in America. And it's now been broken for a year. Nothing to, nothing to do with the fault of the baseball player. But there's another side of this too. And I want to get back to that. But first, let me say this. There's another side of this too, which is that 
if the face of baseball over the next three to 15 months, three to 12 months, because we just don't know, sure. is millionaires arguing with billionaires in a context where there are 20, 30, 40 million jobless Americans, that is really not a good look. Absolutely. And that will jeopardize this, especially because, and, and I understand a lot about the economics of baseball, and we can get more into that, right? But here's what I know for sure, and I think every baseball fan who, who knows the game would agree with me on this. No matter what the new basic agreement, because it's going to lapse in the next year or so, when, no matter what is in the new basic agreement, it will not mean cheaper ticket prices. It will not mean cheaper parking. It will not mean cheaper beer and hot dogs, right? This it will not mean cheaper if you apply if you subscribe to MLB TV, which is a great. I don't work for them, but it's a great app. You can watch any out of town game. Yeah, all of fantastic. The price of that isn't going to go down either, right? Sure. So with less disposable income, with people really struggling to pay their rents, pay their mortgages, pay off well, their college debts, healthcare costs, you know, it, it, it is a model built on working people spending a lot of money to watch millionaires. And that to me, there's no guarantee that that will last. And then, and then the other point I would make here is that baseball, you know, MLB is a multi-billion dollar industry with some very rich people and some very valuable commodities, right? The MLB, that, that trademark, right? Those, those, the licensing agreements, the team names, the New York Yankees, right? The New York Yankees is synonymous with the symbol of New York, of America, right? The Los Angeles Dodgers, you go to Mexico, you, unfortunately you see Dodgers hats everywhere, which is like Giants hats, but that's what you see, right? <laughs> so, so these are valuable commodities, but the most valuable asset Major League Baseball has is its role in American culture. It is a beloved and valued American institution. And the challenge for MLB is to come out of this crisis having, having increased that rather than decreased that. So for me, the question for MLB is not how do you salvage a season because we don't, I don't know the answer to that question. And it's not even what do you provide for baseball fans because baseball fans, we want baseball. I mean, it's not that complicated. We, we want whatever we can, but we're smart enough to know that we can't. I can't go to the game anyway, even if the Yankees could miraculously play. I live close to Yankee Stadium. I'm not going out there sitting next to the Sure, sure. Right? But what can you do? And also, we have baseball, right? We have conversations like this. We have baseball books. We have our baseball card collections, right? We have our friends we talk baseball with. You know, my two sons go out to the park every day and throw the ball around, right? So we have baseball. But what can baseball do? In this time of crisis, in this country where it has a unique role, and so you can say this in Cuba, the Dominican Republic, but that's different, to give something back, to help be part of this recovery, which is really deep and, and really profound crisis. That, to me, is the question with which baseball should be wrestling, because if it gets that wrong, then it will get the next basic agreement wrong. Then it will get the fallout from the cheating scandal wrong. How, how confident are you that they'll get it right? You know, baseball has a history of sometimes getting it very right, sometimes getting it very wrong, right? Sure, sure. I think I think baseball uh, has some real victories in this regard, I mean, in general, in this sense. Sense, I, you know, I point this out in the book, but they've created very good tech products, right? And that's made it that's that's which they made some money out of, but also really provided good entertainment to people. Absolutely, they, they really internationalized in a good way. And I know Bud Selig is a controversial commissioner from his from his history as commissioner. But two things that, that, that were his biggest successes are, one, bringing in these great players from Asia, right, and more from, from the Dominican and Venezuela and countries like that. That just makes it a better game on the field. And secondly, the World Baseball Classic. And then 
Baseball got, I mean, baseball had apartheid until 1947, but so did most of America. Or not most, but much of America. But baseball got the civil rights movement right. I mean, it took some time, but they were ahead of the curve. I said this in the book, Jackie Robinson is not a baseball hero. He's an American hero. Yeah. And, and now on the other hand, they screwed up the PEDs pretty badly. Took a while to get how to figure out television, right? It's, it's, they've generally, I think, they, they really underpaid and exploited players for a very long time. They continue to underpay and exploit minor league players. Um, so there's, they made this bizarre idea that they're just going to get rid of 42 minor league teams because the owners aren't making enough money, but that would really damage 42 American communities. Sure. But record. And, and the key to getting this right is to see it from the perspective of what can we do to help rather than how do we squeeze a little bit of money out of this? And, I, and, and you know what? And the two are related. If you do something to help, there will be some money. And MLB right now is doing some things, right? They're broadcasting fun old games. You know, some of these games I don't really consider classics, but they're, they call them that. You know, they're broadcasting fun old games, but they could do more. They probably will. But it needs to be a more holistic strategy. And it's not easy. No, it's it's delicate. It's a delicate time. It's it's a it's a difficult time for everybody, isn't it? But yeah, you, I think you're right. It could, it, it it's it's generally considered, I believe, that um, baseball recovered pretty well from the 1994 um, yes. labor 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 uh, crisis, and I think what we're moving into now is a time where they have to respond and adapt in a similar way to, to, to that. And it'd be very interesting to see how well they can come out of this because uh, the, the future of baseball, as we know it, could potentially be at stake. Um, I don't think that's, I don't think that's an overreaction. Um, no, no. Um, okay. Well, moving on. I, I, one of the really interesting things that you mentioned again in the book is, um, is, that there are fewer larger than life characters than in the past um, in baseball. You know, what do you think the main reasons are for this? Do you do you see potential for anyone who's playing the sport now to transcend the sport and influence contemporary American popular culture in the way that people like Babe Ruth, Joe DiMaggio, and Mickey Mantle, Willie Mays, people that you've already mentioned, uh, had in the past? Just to, just to put this in perspective, in the 1950s in New York City, Joe DiMaggio, Mickey Mantle. Yogi Berra, Willie Mays, Jackie Robinson. Most Americans know those five names. One city in one decade. Today, you know, the closest thing was Derek Jeter, but that was more of a New York, it wasn't a cultural, no one's ever going to write, where have you gone, Derek Jeter? Sure. The way Paul Simon wrote about, where have you sure. gone? And part of that is just the culture in general is more fractured, right? We don't watch three television stations anymore the way we used to. We don't, um, you know, there's not 10 new movies that come out every week or whatever it was. There are hundreds. So there's just so much more going on. That's part of it. Secondly, we think of athletes differently, right? A, a, the image that someone like Joe DiMaggio cultivated, right? The way the media worked to conceal things about Babe Ruth and Mickey Mantle, both, that, you know, today would be front page stories and would really change how they were perceived. That makes it much much tougher. And there are exciting players. I mean, just to pick a couple, you know, Javi Baez is, a, is an exciting player to watch. You know, Clay Kershaw is probably as good a pitcher as Sandy Koufax was. Um, but it is, it's very hard to capture, you know, to, to really, it, the culture is so, it's so big, right? So, and also, like, if you think of the biggest star in New York right now is Aaron Judge, baseball star. And Aaron Judge has a hard time staying healthy. Okay, that's a different issue. So, but put Jeter in this group too. There's no, there's no hegemony from New York anymore, right? The, the, 
it's that is a few smaller proportion of the population, fewer major media outlets here relative to the rest of the country. So it's not setting the agenda for the culture the way it used to. You know, I gave you those those players from the 1950s, but the two best players in the 1950s, by most statistical indicators, indicators were Stan Musial and Ted Williams. And most baseball fans today have a vague idea who Stan Musial was. Stan Musial was a better player than Joe DiMaggio. I know I'm not supposed to say that here in New York, but but because he was playing in St. Louis, his whole career for the Cardinals, which when they were very good his first few years and then the rest of his career, they weren't all that good. You know, people don't remember him. So, so there's no one city that tells that story. So you may have, it may be that Jose Altuve remains a legend in Houston for the rest of his life, right? But not in the way that every American knows who Yogi Berra was, right? I mean, I, 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 one time when he was like 90 or something, I tweeted something out on Twitter, like happy birthday to great American, you know, and someone, a, an English friend of mine, Twitter contest said, I didn't know this was a real person. I don't, my whole life I'd heard these things. Yogi Berra said this, Yogi, I thought it was something like American, like not a real person. And I, and, and, and certainly noted that he was like a real and very, very good baseball player. Right. Um, similarly with, and, and, and also, you know, let's just take Joe DiMaggio, Hank Greenberg, Jackie Robinson, Roberto Clemente, right? All of whom, uh, none of whom are alive anymore, but all of whom were extremely important to specific groups of Americans, right? Can't understate the importance Joe DiMaggio had to Italian Americans. Greenberg to Jews, uh, Jackie Robinson, African American, Roberto Clemente to, to Latinos, Puerto Ricans particularly. So that, you know, I suppose that if there were a, a star, say, Muslim American or Chinese American baseball player, they would play that role in that community. Sure. But that's different. And we haven't seen that yet. And it doesn't exist right now. There's no, I mean, if Mike Trout were six feet behind me in the line at the grocery store, or most Americans wouldn't recognize. No. Right. And do you think that, do you think it's reflective of the, the changing place of baseball in American contemporary society? As well, much yeah. as it is about the the personalities themselves. Yeah, absolutely. And I don't want to fault MLB. MLB has no, they're not something MLB has has control over. It's not like Bud Selig or Rob, Rob Manfred screwed this up. You sure, know? sure. Um, the, the other piece of this is that is that as we tell, you know, as as journalism changes and we talk about baseball players as if they're human with foibles and and, and, and divorces and you know all that kind of thing. Um but but baseball has it is if you're younger than say 40 and you don't remember the role baseball used to play in American culture. It is, it is hard to imagine, but it really used to be that way. I mean, it used to be that it was the only sport for much of the 20th century that really mattered. I mean, the other sports were kind of on the fringes. In the early 20th century, the only sport that rivaled baseball was boxing, right? And it also was like before professional sports were what they were. So there was this odd phenomenon that older people, wow, suddenly everyone just talked about baseball. People played baseball all the time. Every factory, every high school would have several baseball teams. You know, you would, you, you, I mean, I, I live, um, I live, happen to live near a bunch of youth hostels in, in, in hostels in, in New York, a lot of European tourists coming in, not anymore, obviously, but, and, and for years when my kids were younger, we'd be out front playing catch and they would take this, they would stop and take a photograph of us. And because they'd seen it in every American movie, right. Sure. But America really used to be like that. Right. Um, and, and it used to be, I talked about this before, but that, you know, the world series, if, if something happened in the world series, people would talk about it. I, a couple of years ago, I was having dinner with a guy who at that time was almost 80 and is not a baseball fan. I mean, he's an historian, but doesn't write about baseball. He writes about history, urban history. And, and he, so this was probably, let's say 2015. And he won, he said, oh, I'm glad, I'm glad you're here. Cause I wanted to ask you, 
and he wanted to ask me a question about Game 7 of the 1962 World Series, which he had attended in 1962. And, and it was kind of a nuanced question for someone who really doesn't know, I thought I knew anything about baseball, you know? And that's how Americans used to, he was a middle-aged young guy at the time, but that's how, it used to be perfectly normal to say to somebody in 1973, so in 1960, when, when Matt hit that home run, who was playing center field? Like that would be, that's how deep baseball was in, yeah. in the culture. The best paid sports writers, the best paid writers were the baseball writers, the local papers. All of that has changed. It's not baseball's fault, but it does change baseball's position in the culture. Okay. I mean, I've I've pretty much covered everything I want to talk about. I just want to. It's such a such a. It's such an interesting book because it's probably it's certainly the only book I've ever read that discussed the potential future of a sport before. Um, and and it's 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 a, it's such a worthwhile such a worthwhile read. That what I have to admit when you when you see the title, you think this is just going to be like old man yells at clouds. You know, right. this is going to be like some guy who's just going to lament the fact that the things aren't the same as they were in his childhood. And, you know, players are, played, are paid too much and that they don't care about their local communities, all this kind of stuff. And actually what you get in the book is um, a real in-depth analysis and uh, a real deep dive into so many of the factors that affect baseball. But what's really great about it is that it's so affirming. It's so affirming in the sense that you come out of the book thinking that baseball is going to be fine. And the baseball will adapt and baseball will change. And it might not be the same as it is right now, but it will still be baseball. And that we'll probably love it as fans. We'll probably love it even more for it. You know, exactly. Baseball's never been the same, right? I mean, I mean, I don't, I, I, I can tell you, I'm like baseball much better now than I like the kind they were playing in 1918. Right. And I like it much better now that it's, that I can actually see the best players on the field. And I think it's great that they televise baseball, which they didn't want to do for a long time. So I have to go to the game. Sure. It is always changing. And, and, and the kind of the, the lords of baseball are always trying to get the balance right. So now we're, we're going to have to find a way to have fewer less strikeouts, fewer strikeouts, because it's, 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 it's not great for the balance of the game. People thought it was – I wrote a book, and my next book after that one was about the move west, the Dodgers and Giants moving west. And I was kind of a revisionist history because it's bemoaned as this terrible thing, but it was, it was a great thing that the Dodgers and Giants went to California. It was a great thing that we expanded. So it is always evolving, and the game itself is, is – such a a special unusual and, and and great game and that's my subjective view of course but that's the view that i bring to the game and i feel that way now like i would look it's a nice day i would love nothing better than to head up to yankee stadium tonight for a ball game you know but yeah well hopefully hopefully we're not too far away from that happening again um listen i'm gonna i'm gonna bring it to a close there thank you so much lincoln for, for joining me We normally have a talk, don't we, uh, at the beginning about how when we first came to the book and what our first impressions of the book were. Mm. Um, but we were just talking off air there about how it's not it's not a very well-known book and not that many people know the book when you talk to them about it. I think I first came to the book when I heard about it on Effectively World and I was racking my brains trying to work out which presenter it was that was talking about it because that would put it in the right time frame for me. But I think it was Sam Miller so, and I think it was prior to him returning uh, to the podcast um, last year. So I think it was a, a few years ago. But I remember him talking about it on the podcast and I thought it was something that sounded really interesting. And I went and got hold of a copy and, and really, really enjoyed it on first reading. And then when I was coming back to it uh, a few weeks ago, probably about just over a month now, I was really struck at how, um, how pertinent it is at the moment 
given the situation affecting well everyone in the world but uh, particularly in this context affecting baseball and how it's been shut down and uh, and what what potentially might happen to baseball given the coronavirus and then yours is a little bit yours is just you came to the book because I told you to read the book because I wanted to discuss yeah. the podcast. Uh, yeah, pretty much ago. Pretty, pretty, pretty much, yeah, three weeks ago was when uh, I first heard of the book. <laughs> and uh, as, soon as, I read, as soon as I read up on, well, as soon as you talked to me about it and I did a bit of research, it seemed like a very, we, we should definitely do this book now, <laughs> um, given what's going on in the world. Uh, and also how it relates to, uh, what book did we do a couple of weeks ago? Seems like such a long time ago. Um, was it the Josh Chetwind, maybe? Or yes, yeah, 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 yeah. That was it. About yeah, the future about of European sport, about baseball in yeah outside of the states, outside of North America. Yeah, 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 exactly. And how the coronavirus may have quite a severe impact on uh, smaller markets. Yeah, I mean that's that's the that's the, the interesting thing about this book is that. Um, Lincoln Mitchell quite successfully employs an analytical approach uh, to the game's past and to its present and, and kind of looking ahead to the future. Um, but he's not an economist, you know, so he's, he's not interested in necessarily, well, he, he doesn't have a, a great scope necessarily in an economic sense, but his is um, more focused on the social history side of things. And from that point of view, it's really interesting because we've, we've spoken I think uh, when we were talking to Paddy and Sam about how, uh, what, what the potential for coronavirus is to baseball. And I think all of us at the moment are thinking about how the coronavirus is going to affect our lives uh, across society going forward. So, um, yeah, it's definitely a pertinent time to be discussing this kind of book, even though obviously there's no reference whatsoever to pandemics in the book. Um, I think it's quite an interesting, it's quite an interesting discussion to have to kind of gauge the, the health of the sport because we don't often think about it very much. We, we think about baseball as a spectacle and we think about baseball um, as something that we enjoy watching as an entertainment form, but we don't really think about its health. We don't really think about how... You always assume it's going to be there. You always assume that like the sun rises in the morning, um, that it's just going to happen and now it's not happening and nobody knows when it's going to happen and it's freaking a lot of people out definitely definitely and uh, i mean how well we 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 we're, we're jumping ahead of ourselves a little bit how how mm. we, if we can remove coronavirus from the equation if we could forget about the 2020 season and kind of rewind our thoughts to sort of around february just as this players were reporting and spring spring training was starting if i'd have asked you then how you rated the health of major league baseball where would you say it was relative to its history? And I'm talking in terms of, you know, the context of there being more money than ever in the sport and players mm. certainly in the major leagues being paid more money relative to the general population than they ever have done. I know there are issues surrounding minor league pay and, and the, the, the wealth is not particularly well distributed across the sport, yeah. but there is definitely more money in the sport. There are higher attendances. There are more teams. Um, I mean, are these the things, are these the most important measures of success or are there other things that, that you think determine the health of baseball? It's such a big question. And I have split thoughts on it. One, what, one, one, is, one is directly related to what you've just said, which is uh, more people are going to games than ever before. There's a lot of money in it. Um, uh, MLB's attempts to 
go after a, a younger demographic in terms of expansion on the internet. They've really been ahead of the game, in my opinion, compared to other sports. So in that sense, uh, from a from a business point of view, I would say it looks minor league, the minor league situation aside, it's, it's looked, looked back in February pretty healthy. However, my own personal uh, excitement about the season took a couple of pretty big hits, one of which was the sign-stealing scandal, um, which uh, really depressed me. And uh, being a Red Sox fan, the um, salary dump... No, no, you're not allowed, we're not allowed to call it a salary dump. It definitely wasn't the salary dump. But uh, from a Red Sox fan's point of view, not only being connected to the sign-stealing stealing, stealing scandal, but also... Uh, Chain Bloom coming in and the decision that John Henry's decision to uh, dump salaries and, and retool. I was, I was approaching, I wasn't really looking forward to this season much. I know we talked about it a little bit, or I, I kind of hinted at it a little bit in the last podcast that the thing that really depressed me about the sign stealing scandal, I'm going to keep tripping over that. Call it, that the bang, um, call it the banging scheme, it's a lot easier. Yeah, that's tra- what trash bang wallet. Yeah, Meg Rowley loves to call it. Um, that uh, the responses to that from Red, from, from Red Sox communities that I'm in, I thought was um, quite disappointing. And Astros fans as well. As well. I saw a lot of, um, uh, like, you know, excuse makers and apologists and, and um, quite a lot of the toxic masculinity that I talked about in the last podcast that I didn't really like to see. So uh, in terms of like how personally I was looking forward to the season, not a great deal. I did, I did perk up a little bit when uh, preparing for, the, for my fantasy baseball draft and um, I'm the commissioner of a, of a league that used to be in. Um, so that I, I really look forward to that. And like, I, I started, to, started to look forward to the new baseball season um, and then the coronavirus hit and I've, I've taken a few steps back. <laughs> so yeah, so it's a kind of, there's, there's two different answers to the same question really. Um, what about you? Well, I think it's really interesting that you mentioned MLB's attempts to, um, you know, engender itself with with um, with with younger fans because the the it's an aging sport in terms of its demographics. It's got a, a, an aging audience. Yeah, it's very white. It's very conservative. Small C. It's very old, and these are things that we know from being in the UK. You know, having witnessed the decline of domestic cricket in this country, um, you know, even as an outsider, you don't have to be a fan of cricket to know that it holds less of a place uh, in contemporary British society than it did, say, in the, the 1950s or 1960s or even into the 1970s and early 80s. The, the, these are things that don't bode well for a sport going forward. So as it, if it's not able to reconnect with younger fans, then it will really struggle. And I don't know, it's, re- it's, it's difficult to gauge. In, in certain aspects, I think baseball does things very well. Um, it, 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 it has opened itself up really well to families and uh, to younger fans in that sense. But I always kind of get the, the sense of when you when you see baseball matches, when you see the games, when you see the audience, they they are older people and their families, and there aren't that many younger people um, going to games independently. But then it's really difficult to gauge. I I, I don't yeah. have I don't have access to all of the um, to all of the data to be able to to say that's just something that. 
that's just anecdotal from my from my experience and from what I perceive. But that could massively be wrong. No, I don't. I don't think. I think it's it's something not not just baseball, but like you say, cricket and sport is struggling with in general. That uh, in preparation for this podcast and um, using the book as a jumping off point, I started doing little bits of research on the internet and discovered that you know tennis participation, youth participation in tennis is down and American football is down. And I think that's where the book is strongest. Um, and in fact, I would like to have seen more of it is when uh, Lincoln Mitchell is writing about how sport shouldn't re- or baseball shouldn't really uh, be focusing on how it competes with other sports, but how it competes with other forms of entertainment and working in the book industry. That is something that uh, has occupied quite a lot of my working life over the last 20 years or so is working out how to get younger people reading because they have so many distractions now in terms of you know netflix and video games and smartphones etc etc the books aren't competing with other books they're competing with other forms of entertainment and i think that uh, the book industry and sport and um probably many others that i can't think of right now um are all are all struggling to uh occupy a space that, that that might have been easier to occupy 20 years ago, 30 years ago. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of one of the things I really like about the book. Uh, you mentioned that, that it was like a, a jumping off point to go and look into other things, which, which you found interesting. I, I think possibly the best thing about the book is how it serves as a, a primer in the areas that it discusses, you know, uh, we'll come onto these perhaps a little, little bit later in the discussion, but talking about barnstorming integration, uh, even the, the New York kind of cultural influence of the 1940s and 1950s, the changing shape of youth sports in America. And I was like, I was left uh, really keen um, by the book to look into many of the different topics that it discusses. One of the things, because you have already mentioned about appealing to young people is this notion of the decline of youth sports in America, which I think is really, really interesting um, mm. because it's not just that young people are playing less sport. It's just that they're specializing too young. And I was, um, a lot of parallels with, um, the, the arm, you know, the Jeff Passan book mm-hmm. where he kind of talks about how, how detrimental it is to young pitchers to be throwing so hard and to be focusing so much on just pitching, um, from such an early age. And I thought that whole area was really, really fascinating. And particularly when it talks about how women or girls are moved away from baseball and um, the lines between baseball and softball um, in, in gendered sports, in, 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 in sports for young people in America, which I thought was really interesting. And it kind of led me on, uh, because there's loads going on at the moment. We're, we're kind of, we're kind of, I'm doing quite a lot of interviews with authors. And one of the authors I've just spoken to um, is Anika Oric. And she talks in her book, which is a fantastic book about the All-American Girls Professional Baseball League. And we're going to be talking about that in, in, in a couple of weeks on the podcast. Um, but one of the things that I, I found out from researching um, that as a, as a phenomenon, as a social phenomenon, is just that now we, girls aren't allowed to play baseball with boys. You know, there, there, were, there, were, there were things done to prevent girls playing mm. baseball with boys. And, and this is a big thing. And, and it's really difficult for baseball to reach out to young people when it's saying only young males are allowed to play baseball, you know, only young males are allowed to come and play baseball and that there's no option opportunities for, for young girls to move into professional sports if they're baseball players. And, and I think that that's one thing that 
but one one thing that if you're thinking about how baseball can adapt itself to be as open as possible to young people, if it's closing itself off to half of the population, then it's definitely not being successful in that regard. So I thought that was quite interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, which of the factors mentioned in the book, because I kind of listed a few there, you know, barnstorming, um, the integration of the Negro Leagues um, in the 1940s and into the 1950s, um, which, which of these things, or the globalization generally of, of, of world sport, which of these things did you find most interesting? Um, was there one thing that you can pick out that you kind of thought was most or particularly interesting for you? Um, looking at the globalization aspect, it was the, t- the declining TV audience. Um, yeah, that was, that, was, that was quite interesting. Um, in terms of more, even though ballpark attendances are up, people watching on TV is down and possibly the biggest threat to major league baseball or to big, big league baseball is how do you, how do you, how do you try and recoup some of the finance that you're going to lose through declining audiences on TV networks? Uh, and, the MLB has gone down some has, has gone down the route of you know MLB TV and trying to monetize that, uh, which they've done you know is a bargain. Um, and there are certain certain things that they're doing which I think are way ahead of the game. But they potentially the finances coming from that from the new developments won't necessarily offset the declines from uh, TV advertising revenues. Um, so yeah, that, 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 that aspect I certainly found most interesting and potentially the biggest hurdle that Major League Baseball have got to address in the future. Well, not just Major League Baseball, but, but sport in general, because sport, sport audiences on TV seem to be declining across the board. But that again, you know, um, I'm kind of jumping on that a bit because I've also found that incredibly interesting. But the whole mm. time I was thinking about that was through... Um, you know, through thinking about um, the MLB at bat and MLB, mm. um, the way that they the way that they market um, televised games, and just how ridiculous it is that they have blackouts in in local areas, and and, and these are these are all things that they can control. And if they really mm. genuinely felt that having more people watching baseball on television was paramount to its future health, then you'd have thought that they would just encourage more people to watch television and there are things that they could directly do um as the owners of the media to to do that you know be it reducing the price of of a subscription although to be honest i think i think the subscription is incredibly reasonable yeah for you i think it's a fantastic product and it's i mean it's it's, it's fantastic for us as people outside of blacked out markets to be able to watch any game we like any 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 day of the week but now there are things that they can do if they want if they want to encourage baseball to be shown on television more more people to watch baseball on television and there are things that they can do about it they're in control of that it's not yeah. this abstract indirect thing that they're that they're out of control of they completely hold holding the ball in that regard so yeah the resistance is coming i uh, from owners who were worried that if you didn't have blackout areas then people would stop going to the ballpark um and that's that's i think that's their only argument that's certainly the only argument that i'm that i'm aware of yeah um, but that but then there's no evidence necessarily of that of that being the case you you, you might think that that's quite a, from in my point from my point of view, that's an incredibly small-minded 
mm. uh, way of thinking about it. Now, I, I can kind of understand it in the context of, of the English football system. You know, if there are, there, there are reasons, there are protectionist reasons why there's no football broadcasting on UK television at 3 p.m. on a Saturday because there is a genuine fear that if you're a supporter of a lower league team or even a non-league team that, you know, somebody might be more inclined to sit at home and watch something that they've already paid for at 3 p.m. on a Saturday than go to their local football team. And I kind of understand that. That, that yeah. me, that, it's not, not, it's not, it's not something that's never been explored here. And there's evidence to the contrary in countries like Germany, I think, where, where games are broadcast at three o'clock on a Saturday or, you know, but it's not something we've explored here, but I can understand it here as a genuine fear. Well, I, I can't understand it as a genuine fear in, 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 in the US and Canada where, you know, teams are, are much more able to attract audiences to games. And if they can't, it's possibly because the tickets are priced poorly. And if there yeah. are games that aren't selling out, it's because, you know, those games are perhaps out of the price reach of, of, of certain people who they're trying to attract. But that kind of leads me on to something else, which I thought was really interesting and something which I genuinely hadn't co uh, contemplated before having read the book and I've looked into a little bit since. And that is, you know, this idea that we always talk about expansion. We always talk about how MLB needs to, is looking to expand and we talk about, yeah. you know, you hear talk about Mexico City and you know, the prospect possibly of having another team in Canada or having a second team again in Canada. And we never really talk about MLB contracting, getting smaller, but it's, it's been something that's been on the cards for, you know, various points of its history. And it's, whether it's really recent history, you know, there are teams that are really struggling to sell out games all the time. You know, they're the, the most obvious ones, you know, yeah. the trop, you know, is very, very rarely full. And, but there, I think there are extenuating circumstances behind a lot of those, but there's a good argument to say that we could have fewer major league baseball teams and, the, and as a product, as a, as an entity, it would, it would be healthier for having fewer teams um, yeah. at the top level. Well, I think you might, you might get your wish if this coronavirus outbreak Well, is, yeah, possibly. I mean, cer certainly the, 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 with the, the plans for minor, minor league baseball to reduce the number of teams that the coronavirus will make that more likely a, a possibility, right? Yeah, I mean, come, like, what, what, do you think, what do you think that does to... What do you think? What do you think that does to baseball fans, or to the health of baseball? Because it's very much focused on big league baseball, and and what Mitchell does, Lincoln Mitchell does really well in the book is to to kind of uh, um, you know uh, define what big league baseball means. And and over the years, big league baseball's meant different things at different different times. But right now, we're talking about MLB. Mm. How how important um, how important do you think the minor league system is for? For, for baseball and, and generating interest in the sport yeah, yeah that's something i don't know i'd like to do my own research on it i'm trying to think of another sport or another example where that kind of thing has happened that you know a substantial number of teams have been have disappeared and whether or not that's led to reduced participation i can't think of one off the top of my head but yeah i'm i can't ima i can't imagine it's good news no no, well, no, because not if not in terms of not in terms of building. It's quite an abstract concept, but not in terms of building a support base for baseball. No, we were talking about we were talking off off air about geography, about the geography of um, baseball, and I was saying that if you if you're in North Dakota, uh, you are eight hour you are basically like if you if you live in the middle of North Dakota, you're an eight hour drive away from any kind of baseball, whether it's AAA, AA, or uh, MLB and if that eight hour trip becomes 12 hours because teams have folded that's 
that's not good. Yeah, no, definitely. So of all, of all the factors mentioned in the book, which one do you think poses the greatest threat to the future of baseball as we know it? And you're not allowed to say the coronavirus because we're going to talk about that in a bit. I, th- I think I, I, I showed my cards in, the, in trying to answer the last the couple of questions ago about t- declining TV audiences and declining yeah. revenue coming from that. Um, I can't remember the stat in the book, but uh, Lincoln Mitchell does mention how much money comes in through um, baseball appearing on mainstream television and, and uh, yeah, when the next round of TV contract negotiations come around, which will be a year after, it'll be next year after the coronavirus that, yeah, I, I can't imagine what that proposal is going to look like. There's, there wasn't, there wasn't really any talk of, uh, uh, of the CBA in the book. And, and I was surprised actually, because in, from, from my understanding of, uh, you know, the health the contemporary health of baseball, that, that is the biggest thing. This, this kind of, uh, labor relations situation yeah. we have for me, that's, for me, that's massive. And I think it's a shame perhaps that it wasn't talked about very much in the book. Um, because I think that's something that's going to be incredibly pressing, uh, in the next year to 18 months. And, and there's already been talk even prior to the coronavirus situation been talk about, um, being stoppages, um, because of the, because of labor disputes. So, We'll see how that pans out. I mean, for me, that's things seems like a massive hurdle that baseball has to get over because, you know, do you think it's a massive hurdle? Because in the interview with, in your interview with Lincoln, I think you rightly pointed out, like uh, the, the general perception is that after the previous strike in 94, was it? Um, that actually baseball seemed to survive that all right. But one of the things, well, the, one of the things that, well, there are a few things that it did. And this is where the book's really strong, actually, is identifying the areas that of, um, you know, areas of development under the under C-League, you know, the last commissioner. Mm. He, gets a pre- he gets a pretty tough rap from a lot of people in the way that he's perceived. But a lot of the things that he did do have been beneficial to the health of baseball. And when I talk about the health, I'm, you know, I'm talking again about money and the amount of people going to see games and that kind of thing. It's very difficult to define what the health of the sport actually means. I think it means different things for different people. But it's very much in the context of what we're talking about in terms of the book that we're discussing. I think when we talk about the health of baseball, we are talking about the number of people that are watching games, uh, the amount of money that are in the game, that's in the game, um, and the amount of baseball that's being played at the top level, I suppose. But yeah. I think um, I think I think what one of the things that they did well in the after the last after the last labour short uh, labour stoppage in '94 was internationalise the game. You know, they they brought in a lot of players, they brought in a lot of top players. And they look to expand into lots of different markets. And that's something that we're quite interested in over here in the UK, obviously, is that we've had, we're, we're experiencing now the, 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 you know, the, the attempts by MLB to expand into a new market. And we've already discussed that quite a lot on um, the episode we did with um, Philip Verfor, you know, and uh, the, yeah. the Josh Chetwind book. But I don't know. I don't know. I, I, one question I was going to discuss is, you know, how how confident we are that the sport will be able to adapt. I don't know. I don't know. It's very, it's very difficult to say. Is it too uh, big to fail? No, I don't think so. I don't think so at all. I, I think, I think, I think again, it de- depends on definition of failure. And that sounds like I'm sitting on the fence, but I think it's not, it's not unrealistic to expect the sport to change quite dramatically uh, in the mm. next 10 to 20 years. I was really intrigued um, by something that Russell uh, Eason was saying on, on the Batflips and Nerds podcast. I don't know if you heard their, 
they did their their room no, behind on this. And they did a, a 101, a room 101, and they each had to uh, choose something. It's really interesting. It's a really interesting uh, episode. They each had to choose something to put into room 101. And uh, Russell was saying that you know he thinks that that there won't be. You know, I think he said it fairly flippantly, but it struck me. You know, that, that nah. there, won't, there won't be any base. <laughs> there won't be any uh, MLB in, in 30 or 40 years. If you know, if 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 uh, it continues to. Uh, it continues to embrace fans in the same way that it does. It's a particular reference to the way that announcers uh, talk about baseball in relation to its history. And, and that's a very specific thing, but it did strike me that as all these things, I've kind of been thinking about lots of things at the same time surrounding the health of baseball. And yeah, there are, it's not, I don't think it's outside the realms of possibility to think that it might change dramatically. I mean, I talked to when I, in you know, the interview with Lincoln, we talked about barnstorming and, and yeah. how, much, how much of a how much of a part of baseball's history that was, um, mm. and, and how it could be a, a part of baseball's future as well, immediate um, future as well. Yeah, that that certainly seems. Yeah, the, the, with, with the next round of the labour agreement, whether or not certain things like that might get written in in case of the event of another, you know, unexpected outbreak. Like, how do you keep an interest in baseball if you can't play a full season? Yeah, little little, little things like that. Um, might help like historic we, we 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 see baseball when we look back we see its history but i don't think we often i don't think we often uh try to evaluate how massive the changes were we always think of baseball always having been the same and always going to be the same but some of the changes that have happened in baseball's history have been quite massive you know the the move west in the 1950s of that kind of movement into california where you think now there's yeah. There's five teams in California now. You know, it's it's probably the the healthiest market um, in all of baseball now, and it's only 50 years, just over 50 years, 60 years since uh, since there was no um, major league baseball being played. I know they had a very very yeah. robust and healthy uh, Pacific Coast League over there, but you know that was a massive change, a huge change. Mm-hmm. And then um, the introduction the introduction of the designated hitter rule, which we now kind of just take for granted as just kind of foible that one league has and one league doesn't have but you know that that was that must have been pretty massive i imagine there are people at the time thinking well i know actually from having read a little bit about it that there are people at the time i think roger angel saying you know this is this is terrible you know this is something yeah, yeah. That's never going to catch on and you know things have changed quite dramatically uh various points the inter, inter, integration yeah, you know, yeah. Uh, jackie robertson we've just celebrated jackie robertson they you know it's something that's quite quite topical at the moment people talking about so you know, there are things that have massively changed the sport and it always seems to become more robust and more healthy, but you never know. You never know if um, we might look back in 15 or 20 years time and say, yeah, there were seeds being sown in 2020 or prior to 2020 that suggested that it was in decline. I don't know. It's really difficult to say. It's really difficult to say without, without, and I think perhaps that's where the book comes up slightly short in one area is that and this is a key thing, you know, that the Lincoln even even said himself said he's he's an outsider. He doesn't have access uh, yeah. to, to within the sport, and um, and he couldn't go knocking down doors and and looking for answers because it's not it's not his area, it's not his field of expertise. He's a social historian, and and that, that's uh, and that's that's his that's his take. And and from that point of view, I really enjoyed the book. I enjoyed its an analytical approach and. And I thought it had a very strong methodology, but 
Um, yeah, it's quite. It's really provocative. That's what I liked about it as well. Like he doesn't have all the answers, but he's asking. He's asking questions, and some of them you might think, "No, I just can't see that happening." Like uh, there was a bit where he talked about international expansion, and uh, specifically in Georgia, and he was saying, "You know, it could be the potential that if breakout, if a breakout baseball star, if a baseball star in Georgia breaks out and enters the enters the bigs, it could it could lead to a huge, massive interest in uh, baseball in Georgia. And he was talking about like a few hundreds of thousands of fans. Um, and it's a country with a population of like four or five million, I think. So, you know, he was talking about possibly 10% of the population of a country would suddenly become interested in, in a sport that they had very little interest in um, before. I don't necessarily think that's a possibility, but it does make you think about MLB's attempts to expand. Is it, is our MLB attempting to expand internationally or generate interest internationally? Like, is, is there really a chance that there could be uh, a major league baseball team with a base in London? I don't think that's massively realistic, but perhaps MLB is better focused on trying to generate interest in the sport in the UK. Or well, could there be a, I, I, there'd be a team in Mexico. Could there be an event that? It seems much more realistic to me. Well, I, I think the bigger, the bigger, and perhaps more pressing question is, you know, in in the future of baseball, if MLB doesn't get to make that decision, you know, if they're a, if they're expanding markets, not necessarily mm. in Georgia, but you know, he, he referenced in the chat we had. I think um, I think China and India. You know, on the one hand, on the one hand, I'm sure MLB would be delighted if um if, if baseball were to become popular in india because it's a huge market of a massive population and and, and, a, and a hugely uh, growing you know increasingly wealthy uh, market but what if it were to come so big and so popular um in asia that that was where the that's where the the center of the sport became you, you've seen it happen a little bit in football you know, perhaps it's in its infancy well, yeah but you know look, looking at the kind of players that are going to China now to play to play professional football they're not necessarily the, the absolute cream of the crop but they're players who are in their prime as opposed to maybe five or ten years ago when they're getting mm. coming towards the end of their careers yeah you look at what's happening with the um with the IPL for cricket and what's that's what that's done to the to the structure you know of of international cricket of cricket that's played globally so yeah I don't know it's 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 perhaps where where the threat comes from whether to, to major league baseball, the threat comes if, um, if there's a league developed somewhere else in the world. Um, and let's not forget that baseball is played in quite a few countries around the world, especially in, and in Asia. Yeah. You know, what if, what, what if one of these markets becomes so big that all of a sudden the top players no longer want to play in America, but actually think it'd be more valuable for them to go and play in Asia. Or if they decided that they might want to play a short season in America and then a short season in, in China, a short season in Japan or a short season in, in India, something like that. You know, they, they seem incredibly far-fetched at the moment. And we're not talking about something that's going to happen overnight, but we're talking about something that perhaps might happen in 10, 15, even 50 years time, because it might take that long for things to take off, but, but, but it's worth thinking about. Worth thinking about yeah, you could start to see changes in player contracts that allow that if, if there's enough major league baseball players that during the off season they want to go barnstorming in china or in japan um and use that as as their you know december january ramp up to spring training camp then what's what's to stop them doing it i imagine there are i imagine there are contractual reasons why it doesn't happen now but that's not to say that it won't happen like you said five years 10 years 15 years down the line yeah absolutely
the, bit, the, bit, the, the thing that I most enjoyed about the book that really made me think was the, uh, a bit about heroes, about baseball lacks big heroes. Um, and it's been a debate that's been around for a, for, for a few years now that uh, Mike Trout is a kind of reluctant face of baseball. Um, and just looking at the like social media, looking at the Instagram numbers for uh, people like Ronaldo, who's got 215 million followers, LeBron James, 64 million, Steph Curry, 31 million, Odell Beckham Jr., 14 million. I think Brady's around about 10, 10 million mark. But the most followed account, baseball account, is David Ortiz on <laughs> 2.2 million. And then you've got uh, Trout and Harper at 1.7 million each. And I was talking to my girlfriend about it, actually. I was like, why, why is this the case? Why, isn't, why, why, why do baseball players not have you know, millions and millions of followers compared to other sports? Um, and I was kind of working on the theory that if, if baseball players are playing three hours every six days and every seven then perhaps that's that's enough saturation that, that people need whereas people like Ronaldo who are playing 90 minutes 90 minutes every every week or twice a week perhaps um there's more of an interest in what they're doing when you're not seeing them on screen um but actually she made she made a really good point that baseball is more of a team sport and it reminded me of a quote I can't remember who said it but they were talking about the NFL and the NBA saying that generally the best player in the NFL and the best player in the NBA is the player who wins the last game of the year. Whereas the best player in baseball over the last five years has been on a team that I don't, I don't know if the angels have <laughs> been over 500 um, in any of the years in, in the, over the last five or in, in, in total. Well, that's the, th- yeah, well, that's the thing, isn't it? That, that, um, that there's something inherently, more democratic. I'm not sure if democratic is the right word, but about baseball, that even the best player is is powerless to do anything because he he doesn't get yeah. to, doesn't get to determine how and when they're used in the game. This just comes up completely differently. It's very difficult for a baseball player to take a game by the scruff of its neck in the same way yeah, exactly. that a player can do in other sports. Um, coming back to what I was going to say, because I think you're right that there, there are there isn't really anyone who who kind of captures wider American society in a way that someone like Babe Ruth did or Willie Mays or Joe DiMaggio, but I'm not, necess- I'm not, I'm not convinced that that's necessary to the health of baseball. I, I think that what you need is engagement from lots and lots and lots of other players. It doesn't have to be, don't need one central figurehead, um, you know, to, to catch people's imagination. I think you need to have engagement with lots and lots of people. And I think it's been really nice and interesting seeing some of the, um, some of the uh, major leaguers who are, playing um the mlb the show 20 competition oh yeah yeah, yeah. i really enjoyed seeing engagement in that i think it's been really nice and a really underrated way of connecting to its audience you know the, the way that some of the players have their social media profiles have have rocketed and also just some of the kind of things that players have been doing to be mm. uh, to be engaging with to be engaging with their audience but i think i think that's coming from the players i don't think that's coming from the league and and, and i don't necessarily know that's true. come from the league I think the league's done st- certain things to embrace. You know, I think well, I can't remember the the, the, the cat their thing they said was it let let the kids play or something. Or, yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. The, the whole baffling thing. And I think that that's been really good. I think in that area, I think they've been quite good. I think uh, trying to engage people. I don't necessarily think you need a DiMaggio or a, or a Ruth. You know, I think you can just have a number of people who are engaged with with people. And I think 
that's 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 probably one thing that baseball is doing quite well right now and certainly seems to be from where i'm standing anyway now what i was what i was going to talk about is how you know you ask people if baseball is under threat and they probably don't think it is because we have this very sort of sepia tinted view of baseball in its past and there's this whole kind of nostalgia that kind of goes hand in hand with being a, a fan of baseball um but actually that's potentially quite dangerous to think like that, you know, to, to just to take it for granted and to just to assume that everything's going to be fine. I think it might be a little bit, a little bit, um, I don't know, smacks of... Bang your head in the sand. Yes. It's a bit, it's a bit, you know, there's a bit of hubris there perhaps, you know, that mm. we don't want to, we don't want to look back in 20 or 30 years time and say, Oh, if only we'd have started to engage people, if we only started to do this and there's only started to do that. I think it's quite important that things are done to try and you know, improve it. Uh, as time goes forward um but yeah i'm thinking about wrapping up i don't know if there's anything that we uh i don't know if we talked about coronavirus enough i kind of we saw i thought we were going to talk about coronavirus loads and we haven't actually talked about it that much but i think i wanted to i don't know if i want to talk about coronavirus anymore i've been talking about it all day every day for about a month and a half so yeah no that's 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 fair enough here is baseball today sign stealing scandal need to stop thinking about baseball competing against other sports and more about competing against other forms of entertainment said that yeah no i don't i don't have anything else <laughs> i think um i think one one of the things i really liked about the book uh, i'm sort of thinking about wrapping up but is um and i i think some some people might read it and, and be critical of it for this but i think i really enjoyed it, it was how uh, sort of tangential it was you know they, there was lots of lots of little avenues that Lincoln Mitchell went down when he was talking about things lots of little stories and tidbits which I thought were really nice he kind of had loads and loads of different strands uh, but he seemed to be quite skillful at weaving them together and I thought that mm. was, well it was almost as if um, it was almost as if it was um, and I don't this is going to make it sound like incredibly inaccessible to a number of listeners but i thought it it felt like almost like an academic um almost like an academic lecture you know it felt it felt it had that yeah like a ted talk it had that kind of tone to it it was very engaging it was it was very energetic um and there was lots of information there to to break up what at times was you know quite quite dry subject matter but i thought that i thought he did it really really skillfully um and i got the impression from talking to him as well there's somebody who you know is incredibly passionate about baseball just a, a pro- first and foremost and a massive fan of the sport yeah a fan. someone yeah, who has exactly. a really someone who has a lot of love for the game uh, mm. and, and that that love really comes through in the writing in my opinion so yeah i thought it was a fantastic achievement i thought it was a really in- a really interesting book and and like i said not inaccessible you know it's a it's a, it's a good read it's, but it's it's a sh- quite a short book uh, it's yeah, less than 200 pages. Yeah. yeah. Paperback, probably available on Kindle. Not sure. But yeah. All right. Um, we should wrap up. I think we, we talked about this competition. I don't know how we, uh, I don't know how we do the competition. I think what we were going to say is that we, we wanted to, uh, we wanted to encourage people to interact with us on Twitter. So what we've decided to do is give away, we've got a couple of copies of, um, of Stacey May Fowles, baseball life, baseball, life advice sorry and um we thought we'd give them away uh just do it like a, a raffle um to enter the competition all you have to do is mention our twitter handle our twitter account at rtg pod 
in a generally nice positive tweet so you might want to you might want to quote tweet um something that we've tweeted out promoting the book uh, promoting the podcast or promoting one of the books we've been talking about you might just want to sort of say wow phil and steve are so amazing i love listening to those guys or you know something like that you might want to say something critical but um constructive constructive but yeah don't don't do that don't do that <laughs> our, our dms are open so if you want if you've got something critical and constructive to say just dm us but if you in terms of the competition if you could quote tweet or mention us um in a in a in a positive light uh that will really help us to expand our audience to your followers and also um and also just generally make us feel quite nice to hear nice things that people are saying about us. <laughs> Who's that nice? Yeah. And nice, in return, nice in return for that feeling, that warm and fuzzy feeling that we get from reading all the nice things you're going to say about us, we'll enter you into a, into a, into a competition to win a copy of Stacey Mayfowl's Baseball Life Advice. And we'll ship anywhere in the world, even Luxembourg, where we've got a listener in Luxembourg. I'd love to know who the listener in Luxembourg is. So if you want to make yourself known, that would be awesome. Um, that might be my friend Emmanuel, who's 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 moved out there recently. Actually, she knows that I do a podcast. Okay, well, she whoever it is doesn't listen to every episode, <laughs> but um, yeah, we've definitely got we've definitely got um, a small but perfectly formed following in uh, in Luxembourg, which I was quite surprised about. Um, so yeah, nothing else to say really. But thanks very much for the chat. All, All right. right, thanks Stay very safe. much, Phil. Yeah, stay safe and uh, speak to you soon.